All right, guys, welcome to episode number nine of the Fitness Devil podcast. Today, we got Mike Isertel. Now, you may notice some laughter in the background because Dean and I basically fought ourselves the entire time not to burst out into hysterical laughter at pretty much everything Mike said. Hang in there. This one's a really hysterical and really good one. And enjoy. Shut up and sit down. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode number nine of the Fitness Devil You Know podcast. Today, we got Dr. Mike Isertel joining us. So we are going to get right into the intro because we've got about an hour and then uh, we got to cut off. So if you don't know who Dr. Mike is, there's something fucking wrong with you. Uh, he has a uh, BS in movement science and a master's in exercise science and a PhD in sports physiology. He's a really smart fucking dude. Uh, he used to be an assistant professor at Temple University and Central Missouri. Uh, he was a primary sports nutrition consultant uh, at the U.S. Olympic training site. He's a competitive powerlifter and currently a very competitive bodybuilder, two-time Arnold Grappling Classic Jiu-Jitsu champion. He's, a, he's an author at Juggernaut Training Systems, the co-founder of Renaissance Periodization, and he's a renowned public speaker and presenter. So welcome, Mike. Jeez. Thanks so much for having me. Did we miss anything? <laughs> I feel like oh, there should man, be more. Stuff. Yeah. I'm, uh, let me just add a couple things. Okay, First of all, please. I used to be a King's certified dragon tamer, but uh -huh. through a series of very unfortunate accidents, I lost that license, though I still feel like I have a really good handle on my ability. See, you should lead with that. That should be like, that should have been number one. Well, I would lead with it, but I lost the license, so it's kind of embarrassing. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not a, it's not a BS or an MS or a PhD. But no, but I, I can still do it is what I'm saying. I, I just need another chance to prove myself. You'll get it. I'm sure. Like, did you contact them? I, we've been in talks. Look, my lawyers are on it. I just, I'm, I'm not, I should never brought this up. I can't, my lawyers say don't talk about it. <laughs> See, this is, this is why I, I really wanted to get you on the podcast. So Dean and I had the, the treat of getting to meet you not too long ago. You came in to present at uh, Dean's uh, gym L2 and you, uh, did a presentation you and Dean Somerset and that's going to be on video soon we'll probably talk more about that but uh, I've also out of anyone in the industry I've actually heard you speak on podcasts more than anyone else I seek that out because you're funny and you bring a lot of great knowledge so that's where you are right now you actually grew up in communist Russia <laughs> and now you're an industry leader uh, how did you get from A to B tell us about that well, you know, there was a lot of walking and a lot of swimming and then a lot of walking again. If you know the topography of the world, clearly, that, clearly, Andrew, that was going to be the answer. So I'm not really sure what you're looking for. Um, yeah. Uh, well, first of all, thanks so much for having me on the show. Second of all, um, yeah, I so I was born in uh, ironically in 1984 in a communist country, which is again, hilarious. Um so in 1991, my parents and my sister and my grandmother moved to the United States. We got to the United States because we are ethnically Jewish and they were killing Jewish people in the street at this point in Russia. So the United States, via President George Bush, uh, the first one, decided to give Jews from Eastern Europe asylum in the United States because we were kind of, you know, getting knocked off. Um, That's we show terrifying. Up. I can't believe we're laughing. Yeah, totally, story. right? Yeah, for sure. So... It, it's a very serious subject like <laughs> totally it, it, but somehow hilarious it's somehow hilarious but you survived you're here survived so, yep and then yeah you know I, th I think that like per 
I think the one of the more relevant things, maybe one of the only relevant things, are the discussions of sport and training uh, from this uh, Russian culture that I have. Is uh, like I'll, I'll put you guys this way: in Russia, if an adult um, tells someone, like, let's say you're at a sort of a dinner party, like a drinking event or something. And people are like, oh, you know, what do you do? You know, if you tell them that uh, you play basketball, um, they kind of look at you and they're like, oh, okay. And, you know, they kind of think in the back of their heads or just outright tell you, like, isn't that like something like children do? Isn't that like a game? Um, but if you're an adult and you tell them you weightlift or you wrestle, uh, the usual response is, oh, wow, cool. So there's this kind of... Um, uh, underlying deeper respect for uh, combat sport and for uh, kind of physical culture uh, in the former Soviet Union. And I think that carries through, like, you know, when I started lifting weights, uh, the only thing my parents ever told me is like, don't make sure it doesn't make you shorter. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, hard to do, dad. <laughs> it did. I, I, I know. Well, so I, I, I grew, I'm the tallest member of my immediate family by two inches. So it didn't, okay, that's <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but, uh, but, uh, you know, so it's one of those things where, you know, after that, it's kind of like the acceptance for my wrestling and my jujitsu and my lifting was pretty high because, and, you know, to my extent of family as well, because it's just something that like in, in Russia and all the republics, if you do that kind of stuff, that's like kind of cool. Like, whereas in the United States and, and, and certainly in Canada, like in Canada, I'll give me, give you guys this analogy. Like if you play hockey, it's kind of like, Oh, oh wow, that's great. And if you tell people that you wrestle or that you're like a power lifter, they're like, oh, like, okay, with that. <laughs> or if you explain it to them, they're like, that's okay. It's kind of weird. And, you know, it's just not uh, deeply and rooted in the culture. And in the United States, it's kind of the same way with like basketball, for example. Like you tell people you play basketball in the U.S., they love it, right? If you tell people you wrestle or you, um, you know, you fight or you do bodybuilding or powerlifting, they're kind of like, you know, they're very, because Americans and Canadians are some of the most open people in the world, just about everything. Like Russians will judge the shit out of you. Uh, to your face or behind your back or some combination. So I, I, I mean this in the best of ways, Americans, Canadians, I'm not saying that, oh, they think like all these things are terrible. They're just kind of like, oh, you know, weird powerlifting. That's kind of strange. And they're going to say it's strange. They're going to be like, oh, that's super cool. But they're not going to be like, oh, wow. But uh, I think a big, you know, sort of heritage that I got from the former Soviet Union was kind of like, uh, it, it was always okay for me to go this route. And I never, cause you know, people talk about how there's quite a bit of resistance from their families and their friends about them, especially females being involved in this kind of stuff yeah. that we are. And, and it's just not something that really happened. And is that why, do you think like even retrospect, do you think that that's why you went that way just cause it was easier as accepted or did you do it partially? Cause like you wanted to fucking fight, you wanted to do bodybuilding, powerlifting, or was it that acceptance piece that made it that much better? Man, you know, like that kind of retrospective analysis is difficult to do because do it. I would, I would, I do it. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I, I should rephrase. Not difficult, but um, uh, epistemologically uphill because we we tend to ascribe, you know, causality to things that may or may not have been part of that causal factor. I'll tell you this: from what I remember, um, growing up as a little kid, I wrestled with my dad every waking second I was awake. Or I'm sorry myself there a bit redundant so, so every every second i was awake i wrestled with my dad and then i got to elementary school i wrestled every single day after elementary school with all the other kids and then when high school wrestling was an option for me i joined high school wrestling and it always seemed normal like it seemed natural to do and then I actually discovered lifting through wrestling because i wanted to get stronger and leaner for wrestling so i started lifting and to me it always seemed uh, kind of like i belonged like i never felt out of place in in wrestling um 
it never felt strange to me. Funny enough, you know, I wrestled in high school and then uh, years later, like 10 years later, I came in to do my first jujitsu lesson. And uh, the, the first thing I thought was, you know, like the smell of the mats is quite profound and quite unfortunate. I basically don't smell it anymore, but I remember smelling the mats when I came back or, I mean, it's not like a, the visual image is me like leaning down to smell the mats. Like you don't have to lean down for shit. You come no, in the jiu-jitsu studio, it shit smells everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I was like, it smelled like home. You know, it was one of those things like, Oh, I'm back. This is great. You know, cause I, I never really understood how much of a shock it must be to come to jujitsu as an adult, having never done any combat sport for your first time, come in and, 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 and just start, uh, uh, you know, rolling around with people and the smell and other people sitting on you. And it's kind of weird, but to me, I had been doing it seemingly my entire life. So it never was a weird transition. Well, it's weird. The fact that you, you outmasked yourself from the sport, <laughs> like in terms of wrestling, not jujitsu necessarily, but wrestling, like you're you'd be a huge fucking wrestler and you probably get, well, you know, what's funny? <laughs> no, offense. well, so it, 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 funny enough, uh, you know, when I was a wrestler in high school, I started at the, um, I was, I wrestled 103 my freshman year. Well, you were, you were still big wow. then. Jesus. I guess naturally. No, 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 no. 103 pounds. Oh, Jesus. I was like, are you, <laughs> yeah, like, well, you were big. No, five. That's like 47 kilos. Yeah. Jesus. Um, yeah, I was tiny. Yeah. And then, so I gained like 10 kilos, uh, every year in high school, more or less. And then I continued to gain in college. So it's funny because a lot of parts of my jujitsu game, the ones I got from wrestling are like a little guy's wrestling game. Like I have a, a single leg shot and a double leg that looks a lot like it's supposed to be a, for a guy who weighs 120. Cause when I learned how to wrestle, I weighed 120 and not kilos, pounds. Right. So that's like, you know, whatever, like to give 60 kilos or something less. You know? Give people a little bit of context too. So when, uh, when we were at uh, that thing, I I'm about eight inches taller than you and we weigh virtually the same really, really close. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, like you're, you're what, like 260, 270? No, God, no. Uh, but thanks for cutting me some slack. <laughs> so I'm, I'm like, two, so to this morning I was 246.8. Oh, okay. I was trying to blow I you have, up, man. Uh, is your chance. Thanks, man. Well, you know, the good news is so, so I'm, I'm like a meter 67, meter 69 and I have, I don't know if you guys use that. Shit no, what's, Canada, what's it in feet? Like, <laughs> uh, so I'm five, six okay, five, and I'm 200 and, and so I basically weigh like 112 and, um, I have this morning, I have two veins running across my abs. <laughs> and so people in the U S come up to you all the time and ask you if you're like a pro wrestler and shit like that. Right. Oh my God. Especially like in the South, when I used to go to school in the South and master's program and PhD, they'd be like, Hey man, you a wrestler. And I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> you're, like, you're like, Hey brother. Get the whole they wrestling. usually just ask you. That's right. They usually just ask you what position you played in high school football <laughs> to, to many swaths of individuals. Um, what you and how you and where you played your high school football is just about the most important question somebody can ask and, and, and answer. And it really is. And you're like, I just did wrestling. <laughs> I'm sure in Canada with hockey, it's, it's, it's gotta be places like, Oh, so where'd you play your hockey? And you're like, I didn't. And they just look at you for like three seconds and they're like, what? <laughs> it's very hard fa- like to find someone who hasn't played hockey. I don't know. Did you play hockey, Andrew? No, hell okay, no. Okay, so well, he, shit. I mean, had I, had so I, had I grown up on skates and learned how to play <laughs> hockey at a young age? I mean, think about how fucking terrifying that would have been. Other players would have just put up their hands and surrendered and said, "No fucking way, I'm not doing this." You missed out, man. So, um, let's let's even and move on to the point of like you were a bodybuilder. Or sorry, you were a 
powerlifter who shifted to bodybuilding. And, and usually it's the other way around. Usually it's like, you know what? I'm not cut out for bodybuilding, but I got all the strength. So I'm going to do powerlifting. Um, what, why wait to be fucking huge and then follow your passion on that? Like, tell us a little bit of that story. Well, so I wasn't really cut out for either one of those. So it makes that much simpler. <laughs> You're not horrible. You, you weren't horrible at either. You're huge. No. Yeah. So I'm, I'm getting better at bodybuilding. Um, and hopefully if I can bring in my conditioning and put on some more size, I'm actually like to a level of size that's national caliber already, which is good. Uh, I'm really big for my height, which is good. Um, and I don't have terrible shape genetics. So it's just all about getting conditioned and uh, I'm just going to add some more mass uh, over the next year and then try to come in crisp. Um, but, um, I will say that I started powerlifting because I was benching a lot late in high school Yeah. and a gentleman who, so I was, I was working out at the Jewish community center, which is uh, the Jewish equivalent of the YMCA. Um, so you guys really, do have really that cheap. in Canada, right? Yeah, we do. So you had a bunch of cheap equipment? We had, so I'll tell you what we did have. Is, uh, the equipment was okay somehow. I'm not sure how that happened. But um, I'll tell you what, so an Orthodox Jewish woman did burst into the weight room and yell at me for having a tank top on because it was exposing too much of myself and that was against the <laughs> Which, if, if you I watch his Instagram or follow anything, like, it, yeah, you don't wear much. daily. Yeah, no. So it was it was funny. It wasn't remotely confused when it happened. I was like, I know exactly what's happening. I'll just let her speak for a while and yell, and then she left. It was great. But in any case, uh, there was a powerlifter there who uh, kind of frequented the place, and he didn't usually train there because the equipment was you know not powerlifting standard. Um, but he watched me bench press, and at the time I was like. 160 pounds and I was benching just over 300 with just flat back, uh, no technique at all. And I was in high school and he was like, yeah, you could be really good at powerlifting if I actually taught you how to bench. And I was like, I know how to bench. And he's like, no, you don't. So I was like, I knew who he was. Like I had heard about him. So I was like, all right, sweet. Just tell me what to do. So he taught me how to arch and retract. And I remember the first month of that was awful because it you know, really takes you out of your groove to do a really big different technique. Um, and my bench went down. And of course, I wasn't testing my max all the time, but you know, like the rep efforts went down. But then after a month, it was like this like insane super compensatory effect where my body finally learned how to move in that new technique. And of course, objectively, the new technique is amazing. So I just started blowing up numbers. And then when I was in my, I think, uh, sophomore year in college, I looked up some federation records and i was like wow i can break a world record you know in like the <laughs> dildo federation or some shit <laughs> so um because and then, so i was like one i weighed about 180 and i actually benched um uh, 370 in competition jesus uh yeah it, it was in a bench shirt but it was uh, <laughs> uh bench shirt is a relative term. you didn't, so you didn't add that man people get mad if you didn't it, tell them that they'd be like you're like sure. it isn't is an Inzer blast shirt. Okay. Uh, so it was, I think it actually took pounds off because it screwed up my technique more than it actually helped me at the <laughs> bottom. <laughs> I, put this way I could touch to my chest with a 45 pound bar in the shirt. Jeez. So, so it was, I mean, in the modern sense of the shirt, it was comical, yeah. but in any case, I benched uh, like 365 raw as well at the time. So, um, you know, so that was a, it was a decent bench presser. And I remember going to that first competition, breaking that Federation record and watching everyone else squat and deadlift. And I was squatting and deadlifting a little bit in training. Um, but I was so jealous. I was like, fuck, that looks way more fun. 
So I started training squat and deadlift and I began to compete in powerlifting pretty regularly in college. I started a powerlifting club at the University of Michigan. And um, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, it's funny because that is when I also started to be a fan of bodybuilding. So I, I remember I had a copy of the 2002 November issue of the uh, Lex <laughs> magazine and I must have read it cover to cover. I mean, I jerked off to it a lot. I had never seen men with so many <laughs> muscles everywhere. But um, but in any case, until the pages were just you know, cemented with semen, um, I was very uh, just enthralled. I, uh, these people look like superheroes to me, right? And um, I remember thinking factually that I would never look like any of them. You know, like, you know, that certain roundness of musculature and that size is, just doesn't look normal. It's like you've never seen something like that in real life, right? You've seen like, big people, you've seen lean people, but you've never seen something that's just like, what the fuck is that? So I just looked up these people as heroes and I continued to power lift. And then eventually, I just started adding more volume in because I enjoyed the volume work and I started to gain more size and I enjoyed gaining more size. So then when I was in a PhD program, uh, I was still training kind of like a hybrid powerlifting bodybuilding routine. And I decided, Hey, you know what? I want to be a bodybuilder. So I switched mostly to bodybuilding training still based of course on compound heavy basics for reps. And then started competing in bodybuilding to, uh, pretty much no avail. It totally sucked at competition. Um, but, uh, I'm getting a little, little bit better all the time and I'm getting more and more muscular, which is really, I think the most important thing. Well, you better, you're like the authority on it, man. <laughs> Yeah, you did totally. This. Yeah, yeah. I, I should, I should probably FYI. be pretty good at bodybuilding. Yeah, you should. Well, funny enough, I don't, I don't claim to be a, a bodybuilding coach. Um, I, I'm not. I don't coach anyone in bodybuilding. Uh, I do consult some individuals, but um, I, I will say that my, one of the individuals, one of my, well, sorry, my best student of all time, Jared Feather, he oh, cool. is a natural pro bodybuilder who just won his first pro uh, natural pro bodybuilding show, and he is really. When people say like, oh, why don't you coach bodybuilders? Well, because Jared Feather does, and he's my best student. I taught him damn near everything I know, and he's a phenomenal bodybuilding coach. And if you ever, I don't know if you guys know who he is, but yeah. his physique, his physique is the kind of physique that if you see at a gym at the wrong time in your life, you'll just quit lifting because you're like, <laughs> why am I in here? If this man has a 23 inch waist and 17 inch arms, fuck this, you just leave forever. So, why well, should um, rephrase that in the sense that you're the authority on how to fucking do it? You don't necessarily have to be a bodybuilding coach. Like you basically science the shit out of getting big, and then for sure, and then debunk everyone lean, else. Pretty lean, so. Yeah, for sure. So, but you know, there's always, I, I, I do take to heart, you know, I'm not one of these people that are like, um, uh, you know, fuck the haters. Like I'm doing my best. Fuck that. Like people say, Hey, doc, you know, you really do suck at bodybuilding competition. I'll be the first person to agree with them. <laughs> but I will also say that I'm trying to get better and, uh, I'm already pretty big and pretty lean. Cause you know, most of the people that tell me that, uh, nobody tells me that to my face, probably because of the jujitsu, but, um, you know, uh, people that, say, oh, you know, you know, oh, I mean, you really don't, aren't that good at bodybuilding? I mean, it's, it's really never from people that are bigger or leaner than me because people who are bigger and leaner than me generally tend to be really good at bodybuilding and they just don't give a shit about anybody else but themselves in, in, in the best way. You know what I mean? They're just like, you know, like, you ask like Phil Heath, what he thinks about like someone who placed like 17th at the Olympia? He'll be like, who, who, who is that? Right? So it's one of those situations where I, I do, you know, when people do say, oh, you know, you, you'd be really good if you were better at bodybuilding forever, the shit you say, I totally agree with them. And I'm, 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 I'm really on it. I, I really am trying my best. 
Oh, that dude, this is amazing. We're here just laughing the, at everything. Well, I'm trying not so, to laugh at some of the stuff that's more sensitive, yeah. but I'm just laughing. Hey, man, what the fuck is wrong with you guys? I'm here spilling my fucking guts out. Are you motherfuckers are laughing at me? Man, you suck at bodybuilding is basically what you said. Every, all the haters hate you, but you don't care about the haters. I want to uh, make no, something. I, I think the haters are right, man. I want to make something really clear to the audience, too. Like, I mean, if you guys are really interested and in, in listening to more of what Mike says, you really should follow him. We'll talk about that later. But you can actually search a lot of podcasts where he is and you can find out a ton of very technical knowledge about uh, muscle building muscle growth that's what you presented on so I didn't want to go too far into that but I sort of a two-part question one are there some just really key concepts that you just wanted to like throw out there so our audience had some stuff to focus on and that comes with also what are some really common and bro-ish ideas that are largely nonsense that it's about time people started really just like fucking off with and leaving alone yeah yeah <laughs> yeah whatever you said man <laughs> um okay so concepts you know that are sort of irreplaceable i i guess i'll just get on this high horse today because you know there's so many to list i think we just pick one or two yeah, and I'll, fuck yeah. I'll so um standardization and tracking i think is indispensable if an expectation of consistent results is indispensable to you. Here's what I mean. If you're okay with sometimes having results, sometimes not having results for weeks or months on end and not knowing why, don't worry about tracking or standardizing your lifts or your food or anything like that. No big deal, right? If you like to ride the dragon, so to speak, and whatever comes, comes, fine. Most people don't tend to approach bodybuilding or powerlifting or any of the strength sports like that. Most people would like to have a handle on their rates of progress. And if they are not progressing, they would like to be able to have sort of a data-driven way of saying, okay, well, clearly it's because of this. And if I fix this, I can get back to progressing. Or, well, I, I know that in my life currently, I'm not able to progress because I can't do X, Y, and Z. And I understand that. So I'm just going to focus on other things. So it's one of those things where people like to have the knowledge about what's going on, but a lot of individuals don't track and don't standardize. Here's what I mean. If you do not bench with a full range of motion, how do you know if you're having good chest workouts or not? Because people will say like, uh, this is a quintessential example I've given it in many, many places. They'll spot a guy at the gym. He'll have two plates on the bar and he'll do like eight and a half reps but like the reps aren't all the way locked out and they're not all the way down to the chest. And they're like, some of them are like really different range of motion than others. He racks the weight and you go, Oh, that, that's pretty good. Right. Is that good for you? And he's like, yeah, I think that's like the most I've ever done. What the fuck is that? <laughs> like the most of what, like, you know, you, you don't, if you don't track your, this is exactly the same example of like, if you go out for a run and you don't track your distance at all, and you're like, oh, man, and you come home and your wife's like, oh, was it a good run? And you're like, yeah, I think so. And like, what the fuck does that mean? Like, is there any good endurance runner that just <laughs> kind of runs? And like, how, how well did you do? How was how your training? Like, well, it felt OK. Like, what the fuck does that even mean? So uh, if you track your lifts in the sense that you write down what you've been doing and see how it compares historically. And also if you standardize them in the sense that you do them with good technique, but also just very similar technique time to time, you can really understand if and how and when you are progressing. 
And then, uh, oh, sorry, guys, can you hold on a sec? My, my dog is destroying shit. Maggie! My dog is sleeping this. beside us because she's well-trained. She knows what the fuck's yeah. up. It's podcast time, so she doesn't fuck around. Yeah, that's good, man. We have a puppy. It's a bulldog puppy, so she's a destruction machine. It's adorable, so you can't stay mad at her for any longer than a couple seconds. No. All good, bad. Oh, there she goes again. Okay. All right. So anyway, she's got a toy that squeaks. That I think it replicates the suffering of an animal. That you know, and that's the key that's concept why they number like squeaky two. Toys. That's key concept number two. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> right. <laughs> you have to make things suffer if you want to be great. No, but um, <laughs> so the, the standardization and tracking—it's—it's it's like a habit you can get into when you're very, very young in the sport. When you just started lifting, I think it's really good to get into that habit of making sure that you're doing good technique and that good technique will help you just because it'll grow more muscle and it'll be safer. But also it's one of those situations where it really does allow you to, to see how you're progressing and be objective about things. And one of the, you guys still there? Oh yeah. I, I love oh, it. Sorry. Keep fucking talking, yeah. man. One, right on. One of, one of the, the, the kind of poor practices that I see in the sport uh, to, to answer the other side of the question is, is basically like is the opposite of that, right? So individuals will come in, they'll kind of figure out the workout on the fly, which like in, in their defense is okay sometimes. Like if you're traveling and you come to a new gym and you're not sure about your fatigue levels, you can just totally slap something. If you are planning your training and you're executing a plan, you got to track and program and have a direction to your training, it's not a good idea to just go in and just kind of do whatever. And people do that all the time, and they do it at a very high level. And I think it largely is a really big disservice to people. I think that's the biggest issue. Like, I even if I look at all my friends, and they're going to listen to this, but they just, like, oh, I'm going to do chest and shoulders and they did the same workout they did last time and they're benching the same exact thing for years and i give them like something yep. very simple like some linear overload whatever like linear progression and they're like man my bench went up over the last two months i'm like yeah because you fucking had a plan surprise like a, and that's not even a good plan i just didn't want to deal with it so I'm like yeah if i can do this and they got stronger it's just yeah. i think i see that as the biggest problem for at least beginners and newbies and people who don't know what the hell's going on i think that's a huge concept hundred percent, hundred percent. And it's one of those things where I think that people see really advanced bodybuilders and, and, and they get filmed mostly when it's just post show and or when they're traveling. And that's exactly when those guys tend to be most likely to throw some shit together. Cause you know, when you're being filmed post show, you're just kind of trying to go for pumps and it's gym. You normally maybe don't even train at, and your strength levels are kind of just still coming back. So you just do some shit that looks cool. And people go, yeah, man, this one chest workout, do you want to try it? Like, Motherfucker, that's not a workout. That's some, something a guy did to get a pump once. Like, and, and, and so I think there's a lot of kind of thoughtlessness in that regard. Where, And I'll tell you this, it's really juxtaposed to nutrition, where a lot of people, uh, thankfully and, and more recently, do actually track shit. So, for example, very few modern bodybuilders, now back in the 80s and 70s, this was in fact the case, very few modern bodybuilders, if you look at their plate or ask them what they're eating, are going to be like, you know, just eating some good foods, chicken, some rice. Most modern bodybuilders would be like, what are you eating? They're like, well, what's it, what do you want to know? I've got this whole meal weight out in grams. I can tell you every single macronutrient. I can tell you exactly why I'm eating it, right? But with, with the training, shit's not quite there yet. I think it's on its way, but it's not quite there yet. And, and I think this, it really pays to put this in a, in a positive historical light. You know, In the 70s and 80s, I remember Arnold Schwarzenegger was interviewed once, and he said, the quote is, you know, Arnold did a lot of... Um, Exaggerating, so I'm not sure how much uh, how true this is, but I, I heard that it's true. He's like, you know, I never really had it 
an ability to do really crazy hardcore diets. And he's like, you know, um, you know, some of my colleagues would, you know, eat like just fish and rice for four weeks or five weeks. I couldn't do that. He's like, you know, uh, pre contest. Sometimes I, I would just go to a, you know, the house of pies and, and eat <laughs> yeah, a pie. I heard that. Cause I felt like it. And, right. It, it's one of those, like in, in today's era, I mean like all the Olympia competitors currently, if you tell them that they just shake their heads and be like, who the fuck's prep coach? Like that's well, Arnold was also, right? these so, guys, these guys were like what, drink, drinking beer and smoking cigarettes as part of their workout regime too. Totally. Totally. So, it, so it's one of those things where, you know, that seems alien to us that somebody could do that. But I think in 20 or 30 years, the majority of the best people will be tracking most of the stuff. And, and now even I even see this trend coming up in, in younger body, like the guys who are winning nationals now, the guys that are winning the junior, uh, you know, Canadian championships, junior USAs and stuff there. A lot of the guys do IFYM or they are doing, you know, they still eat clean, so to speak, but they track macros, they display their macros. And a lot of them even do some training that's pretty fairly well organized nowadays. So I think it's one of those trends that, you know, we have to be careful when learning from the best, not to learn from them the ancestral shit they inherited that doesn't work, but learn from them the shit that does work. And that's one of those tricks of looking at what the best do. Make sure you're getting from them like, you know, what what is the good stuff and not what is the bad stuff that's always been around. So Okay, so that was a good rant. I liked it. But I do want to touch on Renaissance periodization and kind of point out the fact that you weren't always this meathead hypertrophy science guy. Like you worked in academia and then you co-founded Renaissance periodization. How are those different? And like, how has your life changed from teaching to like what you're doing now? Well, so I co-founded RP with Nick back in, what was it, 2013, I think. And I was not even working in academia yet. I was still a PhD student. So I did all of my work in academia, which was four years, while RP was already up and running. The reason that I left academia just this past year was because RP has grown into such a monster that I can't possibly do it justice while still having another job. That's pretty much how that works. Yeah. So... Um, RP is uh, very interesting because we kind of do a lot of what I did in, in the academy. I do for RP, I write books. Um, I do a lot of talking, very much teaching. You get paid better um, for Did it you guys hear that? Yes. Oh, yeah. There's, I mean, yeah, so we put her in her little pen here, and she is not liking it, so she's yelling at us. Oh, oh, bulldogs. All right. So, so in any case, our, our, yeah, so, so RP, so here's the thing about uh, the academy um, it, it, for teaching. It's a, it's a great place because it really does give you access to students face to face and for extended periods of time and in a very formal setting. The downside is you only get access to roughly like, oh, 100, 150 students per semester. And which is just not that many people, especially by modern internet standards, right? Yeah. And and also it's a situation in which let's let's speak frankly, not everyone in university wants to be there and or especially in a class or on any given day. So it's a situation in which, you know, look out into students as you're lecturing, and there's always three or four students in every class that literally are just like pumped out of their minds to be learning this stuff and they ask all the right questions. And, and then on the other end of the scale, there's like four or five students that just could care less about what you're saying. And they're just barely taking notes just to stay awake. And then everyone else is kind of meh. Did, so they didn't know the who you were, man? Of, 
you know, towards the end of my career, they kind of start figuring out, but you'd be surprised. A lot of people just don't give a shit. Like, like, Oh, this is Mr. Hypertrophy. Like I don't care about hypertrophy. I'm just here to get a degree so I can go have, you know, following job, and, <laughs> you know, which is totally fine, I guess. Um, but, uh, you know, Q Jordan Peterson rant about the uselessness of modern universities, but, um, <laughs> you know, there's a lot to, there's a lot behind the limitations of modern academia and through Renaissance, um, we are able to educate literally tens of thousands of people. And um, one of the big ways we got into educational sites, RP used to be just a, like a coaching company. Like it was myself and Nick coaching clients. And then we had to hire other people like Dr. James Hoffman because we couldn't take on any more clients because we literally ran out of time. And uh, eventually clients just kept asking us, so why are we doing things like this versus like that? Like, why don't we do this diet? And then we started the um, carb backloading diet was a big deal, which, you know, led me to thoughts of suicide many times. But um, it was like, why not carb backloading? Why not this? Why not that? Why not keto? Blah, blah, blah. And I was, I just got sick and tired of that shit. And I got sick and tired of referring people to really technical textbooks on sport nutrition uh, because it was just over their heads. So we wrote the Renaissance diet book just to be like, here's how you should diet. And this is why. And it was scientific, yet it was written in relatively plain language and explained thoroughly. And that book, that book was what blew us up because after the Renaissance diet came out, people were like, holy shit, dieting is not that hard. And we're like, no, it's really not that hard. And here's all these fads that are stupid and don't do them. And then with the Renaissance diet, once when I wrote that uh, with some of my colleagues, I also had this this idea. Um, I talked to Nick Shaw about it. I was like, hey, Nick, you know we really just kind of wrote the code for dieting here. Like a machine could write diets if programmed properly. And I was like, you know, we got to make like a computer program or an app or something that writes diets. And he's like, okay. And then I was like, but in the meantime, since that's a pretty big endeavor, I think I can make templates on Microsoft Excel that just run you through the diet process in a simplified way. And he's like, okay. So I sat down and took like three days to make the diet templates in the first edition. And we started selling them and they just kept growing in popularity until they became a fucking gigantic monster that led to like, I don't know, 50,000 people with transformation photos or something like that. And they're now about to be released in the third generation. But it's one of those things where we just kind of simplified the dieting process and we just basically made, in some sense, scientifically literate yet an accessible product. And then since then, we got a bunch of books and stuff like that behind it and books on training, templates on training, blah, blah, blah. So without, you know, ranting too much and beating my own drum here, um, you know, the only mission of RP is to really just take science that is effective and both explain it in a simple way and bring its effectiveness in template or computer program form to individuals um, because the stuff we were learning at academia, we realized that it was really powerful and we wanted to share it with everyone. And I think that was the biggest thing that draw me, drew me to you is that I went through that whole process. I, I, I did car backloading and then I, I found your guys' book and I was like, oh, this is really fucking simple. And as smart as you are and as much as ranted you go on on science, you do make it digestible for most people. And that's probably why it's so successful because – Personally, I'm not going to go read all that really high scientific shit because I don't got fucking time. Like I was going to school to be a teacher. I didn't need to deal with that. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. And that's probably why you've done so well. 
I would assume. Well, th- thanks so much. Yeah, I think it's part of it. You know, uh, um, people will every now and again say that, you know, the way I explain things is it makes them easier to understand. I think it's because I'm not that smart and I need to explain them simply to myself to understand them. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think in equations and shit. I think in just basic concepts. So I have to understand the stuff at a basic level. Otherwise, it doesn't make any goddamn sense to me. So it's easy to explain after you understand it in very basic terms. Uh, that's that's amazing, and like I don't even know what to add to that. That was just a super cool explanation. I, I actually hope people do take it seriously and go explore what uh, Renaissance, what you guys are doing, and especially if they're interested in getting bigger and learning how to diet. Now you mentioned Jordan Peterson and you know, modern universities. So I love this kind of shit, and I've heard you rant about it before. Like we're seeing modern, like intellectual, scientific fact information. This stuff's being pushed aside just to pander this bullshit notion of just not offending anyone anymore, Ever, like potentially hurting people's feelings. Like just this shit seems to be getting out of hand, even in the fitness industry. Uh, like some of these social sociological concepts. Like, is this setting us back? Is this handcuffing us and our ability to actually help people? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, certainly. And this is um, quite an unfortunate trend that's uh, really growing out of academia, but it's spreading to other areas of private life. And I'd like to try to be able to speak on it in a very balanced way because um, I think – I'll tell you what. So we're talking basically about the social justice warrior phenomenon. Absolutely. Absolutely. In a shortened version of Andrew's effect. question, yes. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I will say that individuals that value that kind of approach – and we can keep this talk sort of um, within the context of health and fitness. And, and unfortunately, there is plenty of this kind of stuff in health and fitness. I can give a couple examples in a bit. Um, but the first thing that has to be said is individuals who come at this from that approach are almost always incredibly kind, incredibly sensitive, and incredibly well-intentioned individuals. There is a lot of only the best intention behind all this stuff. So as much as I love to, and it entertains me greatly to see like social justice warrior fail compilation videos on YouTube. (laughs) Um, I think that a true, you know, mending of this sort of rift in culture involves an honest discussion about that. These people have a lot of really good points and and for sure, really good intention, but some of their points are not so good and they thwart even their own intentions. So for example, uh, a good opportunity, uh, a good example of this in the fitness industry is the, the health at every size movement. Are you guys familiar with that? Every episode, I usually go at this one. We talked about it with Sohi Lee and Carter Good. Like, this is a big yeah. fucking pet peeve of mine. So please go. Sure, sure. And so, like, I mean, it's clear that the intentions for this sort of movement, just for those individuals who haven't been aware, is basically individuals saying that if you eat well and you exercise properly, it doesn't matter if you weigh 50 kilos, 100 kilos, or 150 kilos, you can be healthy. And I think they come from a place where advice given to them in the past has been so scale centric and so, and, and there is a tie in to appearance and the emphasis on appearance that has a very toxic ancestry. And it very much does, you know, to a lot of people who have been overweight, especially in like middle school and high school. The idea of losing weight in one sense to them is good, but in the other sense, I'll give you guys a kind of a really good analogy here. It's like the popular kids in middle school and high school want you to be a certain way and you have these nerdy, quirky friends that you could be friends with instead. If you change to what the popular kids wanted, you can be popular and quote unquote 
happy, like a very saccharine happy. But you you essentially gave into their bullying to do so. So for a lot of individuals that have been heavy, especially for a long time, people have been telling them, well, if only you were skinny, if only you were skinny, you'd be happy and healthy and awesome and everyone would be your friend. And and, and there is a, a very understandable temptation by those people to go, fuck you, fuck you. I'm not going to be skinny. Fuck off. You never liked me when I was overweight. You can go to hell when I'm leaner. And you know what? I don't even want to be fucking leaner. And when those people in their search for you know, an attempt to improve their health sort of run into others who have thought the same way. And those others tell them about health at every size, but it's very tempting. You guys know what I mean by that? It's oh, like, yeah. well, somebody tells you like, you don't have to fucking conform to society because it's kind of like fucked up. Like society made fun of you your entire fucking life for being fat. And now they're like, Oh, it's okay. Just lose fat for your health. And we'll love you. Fuck you society. You know, like it, it, it's almost like giving up your pride to conform. And if there's a way to be healthy without having to do that, why not take it? So it's a very, very understandable position. The The problem with it is that it's just empirically wrong. So I, I sure as hell wish there was such a thing as health at every size because I don't want to be fucking skinny. And I'll tell you guys this, when I give up my bodybuilding career in you know, uh, 10 years or so, and I'm just too old to keep gaining muscle and being lean, um, I'm going to drop down probably 30 or 40 kilos within several years just because being smaller is healthier and well, feels better. You guys are both big enough to know how much, how shitty being big actually feels yep, yep. <laughs> getting into and out of cars and shit like that. So um, the thing is, you know, I don't want it to be this reality, but the reality is that to a point and within a sort of a, a moderate range, the leaner and the smaller you are, the better it is for your health. So, and, and it's absolutely true that being involved in physical activity and having good nutrition is good for you at every size. But that doesn't negate that the huge additive factor to that is also if you were way smaller, it would be even better. Right. So it's one of the situations where you can see where the good natured advice comes from. But you, but you have to be very clear uh, that good natured advice, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I don't think anyone's trying to get on that road. So I think when discussing with individuals that are, you know, pro health at every size, I think it's really important to be like, you know, like literally, I see where you're coming from. And it's not mocking. Like we really, really do. Um, it's just that. If we take this road, it ends up harming the health of the very people, including ourselves, we're trying to help. So I think a rephrasing of the problem is really good as a path to the solution. So, for example, you can say, look, you know what? Here's the deal. Fuck Hollywood. Fuck the people that bullied you when you were in middle school and high school. You don't have to fucking be lean to be accepted into society. Society can fucking suck your dick, right? What is a good idea, though is getting leaner for the sake of being healthier and enjoying your life more. Don't do it for anybody else. Don't do it for the fucking people that tell you, oh, you'd be, you know, your mom or your grandma. Oh, you could only, you could get a date with what's his name if you weren't so fat. You know, fuck those people. Do it for yourself to be healthy and don't you worry about body and majority of that shit. I think if we present it like that, it's kind of like, ah, fuck, you know, you're right. And I think most people who are overweight and kind of tempted or the health at every size movement, a lot of them kind of know like, yeah, <laughs> losing weight seems like a good idea for my health, but 
So if you put it to them, you know, if we continue this front, like you're fat and you're lazy and you're fucking willless, do something about it. Like nobody listens to that shit. I don't think I don't think that's ever convinced. You guys know what I'm talking about. Like on well, I, think, I think that what like, you're saying is essentially the way you just described it is how it should be described. But the other way is everyone's like, well, just they'll just do fat shame. Or they're, they're, they're well intentioned, but they do it in a very negative light. Even like they're trying to get people to lose totally. weight, but they're just being very <laughs> rash. And no one really listens to that other than a small minority of the population. So you have to change that yeah. narrative. There's always a small, yeah. like, crazy group that are drawn. To, I mean, I don't. I'm not going to name them, but we have a local lunatic that's really big into fat shaming, and I just he's something fucking else altogether. And sooner or later, I know someone's going to be trying to quite literally get him on this podcast, and we're going to be like, uh, not a fucking chance in hell. Sweet, have him on, man. Uh, I'll, I'll fucking I'll debate the guy, but uh, <laughs> oh I'll come back on. Oh fuck, but, that would be. Uh, epic. I'm actually serious. Um, <laughs> I'm actually thinking but, about yeah. it now. <laughs> there you go. But but no, I think so. So so here's the deal. I think that, you know, a lot of fat shaming is, in fact, also well-intentioned. Yeah. Like you think it's like, you know, training a dog or something like that, where you're like, you know, if we yell at her for pooping on the carpet, she won't poop on the carpet anymore. Yeah, nobody likes the yell- yeah, Nobody likes the yelling, but it's part of the process. And the thing is, like, human beings are a little bit more advanced than the reasoning the dogs. And, and the fundamental thing about people who are overweight, they already feel guilty about it 99 percent of the time. It by no means clear that more guilt is going to help the situation. As a matter of fact, more guilt usually makes it seem like it's overwhelming. You know what I mean? Like they already feel bad about it 99% of the time that they're fatter. So you adding to the bad feelings, eh, I don't think it's anything new. And as a matter of fact, it could just make them feel so shitty and so shitty. It's like telling a kid who's no good at sports that he's a fucking loser and he's a piece of shit and he shouldn't even bother and, and hoping that that kind of insulting will get him to perform like a champion. He already knows he's a loser, though. And much more of saying that to him is just going to be like, well, if I'm that big of a loser, I just quit. And then you're like, wait, hold up, hold up. I was trying to motivate you. <laughs> right. So I think. <laughs> Totally. I think that a calm and balanced approach works best for most things in life. So I think what we're seeing is two sides of a spectrum, both of which are wrong. You've got the, you know, the crazy, super diehard individuals that are like, fat is just a symptom of lazy pieces of shit. You just have to stop booking. Here's a nutrition tip. Put the fucking fork down. Like, hey, thanks a lot, man. You know, you need some kind of fucking award for that shit. You're fucking brilliant. Um <laughs> And then on the other end, you've got like social justice warriors that are like, it's okay to be you no matter what. And it's like, okay, clearly you're dealing with some of your own shit. You are not in a position to advise anybody. So I think the middle ground is probably best where you're like, hey, look, fuck the haters, fuck all that shit, but let's do this for you and let's do it calmly and slowly and logically and get this, man. you know, some of the excess weight off and just do a really good job and who gives a shit? I'm listening to else. this, man. Like, this is a book. You could take like a little lateral move from like the hypertrophy thing and be like a motivational speaker because I'm listening to this and like that makes sense. You could be the, the face of change for both sides of the spectrum. I be the middleman. like... I feel like to be a motivational speaker, I need more pregnant pauses. Can I try that really quick? <sighs> no, I right? don't think you do, man. You're right. like a Tony Robbins, just bigger, less loud. Yeah, but his but jaw more. is bigger than mine. That's true. His jaw is bigger than I'm, your head. I'm just thinking like money ways. I know I know you told me you're doing well, but like this is a big, big market. If you're looking at a lot of people, you know, make a lot of money. I, hey, man, great. I want to sell the fuck out. I'm just not even going to lie about it. I'm just going to say all kinds of bullshit, whatever fucking. No, it's exactly that. Out. That ain't selling out. You literally broke down the whole argument in a well-intentioned and intellectual manner. You could reach people. That's not selling out, man. That's being you. But then being motivational and making more money than you're making now. Like, I see it. Selling out is being. Like telling everybody to put butter in their coffee and all that yeah. bullshit. If you want to be my cigarette smoking, 
mad at the world Jewish Hollywood agent that gets me parts for the shit, I will follow you all the way. Would you do it? Like, uh, <laughs> I need more money. Fuck it. I'll, I'll pick you up, man. It'll happen. Perfect. And, you know, I will do unspeakable things just to get access to, like, TV news and Hollywood. So, you know what I'm saying? If there's any directors yeah. out there with lax morals and interesting sexual fetishes, your boy come will, to represent. Will you I'll hang out with Kevin TV. Spacey for an hour in a in a hotel room, locked in a hotel room? You know. Hash it out. Hash it out. I think Kevin Spacey's into the innocence thing. I am many things. Innocent is not one of them. I would show up and be like, listen, Kevin, you know what I'm saying? We can do whatever you want. Problem is... This is my first rodeo. I think I feel like that's just not going to get us anywhere. Yeah, you're about three times too heavy for his usual type. I think so. Oh, man, give you a little beer and was it? He like got him a little drunk and high. Like he, this, the narrative might change. Oh, <laughs> good God! Yeah, that that whole thing is like fucked up, man. I, for what it's worth, I, I will rant on this. Um, go, I go. really do think that Kevin Spacey did a. I don't want to say a disservice to homosexuality because I think. I think the gay rights are so well along and this is such a good thing that I don't think they're going to be really super harmed by this. No. Like 20 years ago, this would have been a really, really big problem. But fucked everything up. Like, you dumbass motherfucker. He's like, hey, I like, you know, raped a kid, but it's cool because I'm gay. People are like, what the fuck? No, it's not. Gay people are like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And he's like, oh, you know, uh, anyway. uh." And then like everyone was like, he did it to me too. Like he was like a a serial sexual assaulter. Hollywood man, him and Weinstein and all these motherfuckers. I'm telling you, this is like, everyone's saying this, but this is the tip of the iceberg, man. That shit is crazy. Oh, absolutely. Oh, we're seeing more and more. The the Afflecks are, uh, you know, involved in a whole bunch of weird shit. And uh, there's a whole bunch of bad people coming out. I mean, I'm I'm almost afraid to watch movies right now. It's like like that true crime when all like the rich dudes like had the big sexual, like, underground fucking cult like I, I guarantee it's something like that at least something yeah for sure and now we got Corey Feldman I, I just I just want to hear Corey Feldman just throw all the names out there and see what happens because he started to look like a paranoid schizophrenic but I believe him oh, so we'll see oh my god but the, this is such a rabbit hole and we are getting a little short on time so let's get, get to, let's get to the real question I'll, I'll preface this by like okay. Mike gave us a little story about like some some guy, some really nice dude on Instagram or Facebook was like, hey, Mike, what's your training program look like? And he just went off. Like, Mike went off on the crowd and was just like, man, this motherfucker doesn't even know blah, 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 blah. Doesn't even know what I'm eating. Like, this guy's an idiot. And then you're like, but he, he's a nice guy. So, oh, like, whatever. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you what your training program looks like. I want to be on your good side. Why doesn't it matter for most people what people like you, what professionals are doing? Why doesn't that matter in their context of themselves? Yeah. So like, I think it's totally cool from like a fan perspective to want to know what training programs are like, just because it's kind of interesting and it stimulates your own curiosity and your own excitement. So like, I want to see what Ronnie Coleman or Jay Cutler or Phil Heath are doing in their training or like watch videos just because it's like, Ooh, now I'm pumped to train. But I think it's not a good idea from the perspective of trying to elucidate structure and training principles because there are so many confounding variables there. Like, why is Phil Heath doing this kind of workout and is that a good idea? Well, you know, what phase of Phil Heath cycle is Phil Heath on, right? Um, uh, you know, what is exactly that he is doing? What are his goals? What are his injury limitations? What are his specific physique goals that may not be like yours? Like people will say like, oh, well, Phil trains his arms like this and he has the biggest arms ever. Well, yeah, have you considered that Phil's probably not training his arms as hard as he can because he doesn't want them to overpower his chest and people that know? Well, you haven't asked him the context and for him to explain the context would take like two hours. So like people, for example, will ask me like, Hey, what did your leg workout look like today? And they'll be like, and I'll, I'll post my leg workout, you know, begrudgingly. 
and they'll say, why did you do this and violate all these principles? And I'm like, my fucking adductor is halfway off my fucking hip because of jujitsu, you fucking assholes. And they'll be like, oh, so like normally you wouldn't train like this. I'm like, normally I would train like I have a fucking book on it called scientific principles of fucking strength training. <laughs> For God's sake, you want to know how I would train if I was healthy? There's a whole fucking book on it. For God's sake. So it's one of those things like I've written extensively about the principles. Everything. The best things I have to teach are principles based and the principles you can. So, so people try to look at my training to derive the principles to apply to their own training. But I have the principles already boiled down and explained in incredibly great detail. You don't have to do the middleman shit, you know, like I, I sh- and, and, and if they're like, no, but I just want to see what you're doing so I can copy it directly. I mean, we don't have to get into why, why that's completely moronic. Right? right. I mean, like you don't have my needs, you don't have my limitations, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and it is one of those situations where I think, you know, if I was, you know, a bodybuilder that was sort of close mystery and it didn't really say much about my training, it would be cool to kind of see what I was doing. But insofar as I'm like one of the people that most often talks about the principles of training and teach them for an individual application sort of thing, it's just, it, uh, I find it very, very flattering and at the same time very confusing as to why people want to know exactly what it is I'm doing. And I'm totally cool to share every now and again, like just like, oh, here's what's going on with my life. But uh, I think that like any more than that, and I just so people really, really want to know what you're like. I had a guy literally be like, how many calories are you eating per day? And I was like, why? And he's like, I want to kind of know what to eat. And I was like, I got a whole book on that shit, RP diet. But here it is. As a matter of fact, here's the chart from the book to scale calories to body weight based on how hard you're training for free. Here's the chart. And he's like, no, but I want to know like, what you're eating. And I'm like, why? <laughs> and he's like, I don't know. I just kind of like want to see for myself. And I'm just like, Oh my God. <laughs> so, and it's like, I'm not even, I'm like the least private person of all time. I'll tell you anything you want to know about what I'm doing. I just confused as to why the fuck it's going on. And I think the thing that makes this, um, I don't want to say sensitive subject for me. It's really, I mean, this, this whole thing is a joke. I'm not sensitive about it in real life, but it, 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 uh, the thing that also confuses me is I'm, not so sure. I see some people I, like I can first time. I think I'm admitting it uh, on a podcast. I, I legitimately have fans now, which is, which is strange, right? Uh, not just intellectual followers, but people that are like, Oh, Dr. Mike, Dr. Mike, I'm super grateful for that. I think it's fucking amazing. But at the same time, I want to tell all those people like, you don't have to be my fan. That, that, that's fucking, I don't deserve that shit. I'm not a fucking celebrity. I, I'm a regular ass motherfucker who has no fashion sense. I, I you know, I, I work a lot every day. I, I watch star Wars, clone Wars reruns for fun. And that's it, man. Like, so it's, it's weird when people are like, Dr. Mike, what are you eating? I'm like, some boring shit. But <laughs> I guarantee you your life is more fun than mine. <laughs> Man, imagine so, if you got more famous. Like, you would you would blow up. Like, paparazzi following you. People like, Dr. Mike, what are you eating? It's just, I don't know. Could you handle it? Could, man. Could you, when totally. You, I would put on a bathrobe and carry a plant around with me. I'd Harvey Weinstein <laughs> the fuck out of that shit. That's like, oh, yeah, paparazzi, you guys want to see what's really going on? Ah, just dick, dick flash. That's but then, it. God forbid, someone's like, Mike, what's your workout? You just fucking snap. Oh my God. That's it. Just break cameras and shit. I want to have like a drug induced psychotic break on camera. I think that's when you've really arrived as a celebrity is when you like break out of like a halfway home with half your head shaved and run out into the street. Like not completely naked, but you get into a car and your asshole shows and then the limo driver drives you away. Isn't that guys, isn't that real celebrityhood? Think of a real celebrity that hasn't had at least one of those moments. Well, and that the problem is you've already. I don't, you haven't had that moments, but you've spoken very <laughs> wildly to go that crazy. I don't know what you would say and what you would do. Like, you'd be nuts. 
Yeah, I guess because I'm totally open to having that kind of craziness, yeah. it makes me not actually crazy. Yeah, so normal. to actually be crazy, I'd have to. Yeah, have you'd to have to not up. swear, and you'd have to like be very, very not just very well spoken, but like no swearing and no talking about sex and drugs and, and, and dogs. Then, yeah. Five years later, right? Five years later, come back and hope the old Dr. Mike is back, oh, and I'm like bad. vomiting into a dumpster on Hollywood <laughs> Avenue. You know, that's like, I'm just trying to think of what celebrities do. See, that's that's after the speaking stuff I set you up for. Like you blow up to like large, crazy amounts, and then you'll do that, and then we'll come back and you'll be homeless and puking the garbage. It'll be great. You and Tom Sizemore and Lindsay Lohan can all hang out. I you have no idea how ready I am for that shit. All right. So you're pressed for time. So one thing is we really want to make sure people can find you on social media. So can you really quickly tell everybody about that? Totally. So I am on Facebook. Mike is Rattel. It's a public account. Um, so you can follow me, uh, troll me, ask me questions. Totally cool. My Facebook is slowly dwindling because they change the algorithm and I lose like a thousand followers a week or something like that, which is kind of insane, but it's happening. Um, yeah, super weird. And I only see like the, the, like my, like my own feed reflects this. Like I only see 10 people like on Facebook. They're trying to monetize. Like I heard like the more famous you get, they're trying to get you to pay more money for reach. And then they're just, they're, they're trying to get money. You know, what's interesting is I would totally do that because it's a really good business strategy, but I don't know. Maybe you guys can help me with this. It seems kind of scummy to pay for reach. Did you guys think it'll come off scummy or is it just like, Hey, we kind of have it's, to get your message out there. One it's crazy. Another. I mean, I understand it from a different point of view too is, and it's not to defend it, but the internet's Facebook, Instagram, there's more content, more people, more stuff being shared than ever. So it's also harder to make sure that your stuff is being seen by people. And I guess paying for it is a way to then push it back up, but it definitely does come off as like, well, they're trying to monetize it. And, and you're right. I, I see the scummy side of it too. Totally. So anyway, but I there's still a little lot going on on Facebook. I'm on Instagram at RP Dr. Mike, R P D R M I K E. Mostly pictures of me half naked and my meals, which look shitty. People say my food looks like poop. Um, <laughs> fine. I no no debate. And then um, at RP Strength is Renaissance Periodization's Instagram. It's like 190 thousand followers or something absurd, and it's got a lot of cool stuff on there. Um, and RenaissancePeridization.com. Uh, especially the blog. I blog for RP pretty often and uh, got all kinds of cool insights there. And if you want to see more of my shit and you sort of think maybe I'm not completely insane and have intel intelligent things to say about training and diet, just type my last name is Rattel into YouTube. And, um, uh, there's like an infinite number of lecture videos and, um, podcast interviews and stuff that are really, really in depth on all kinds of scientific training and diet concepts. So if you really want to dive down the rabbit hole, that's a good place to start. Yeah. Though that stuff's fantastic. And we we definitely said that. fuck that this cause we don't have like four hours. <laughs> like you have a wealth of knowledge, sure. like, and it's all out there. So that's something I really want to point out is that I'm making fun of the scientific part of it, but there's a lot of free stuff and it's out there. Like it's, and it's in not in small amounts. There's a lot of it. So put in his name and find it all guys. We're definitely gonna bring Mike, back as long as he wants to put up our shit again but uh mike you've been fantastic dean and i were actually muffling our laughter the entire time listening to you <laughs> so uh to our audience guys subscribe again continue to subscribe and share a podcast five-star reviews on itunes stitcher would be like incredibly appreciated and uh just continue to support us continue to give us some feedback we're gonna bring more great guests on so thanks a lot and we'll uh, get you next week take it easy mike Thanks for having me on, folks, and I will certainly come back whenever you guys say the word. Thank you, brother.